to really just kind of be direct about um, what queer theory is, is that it is about critiquing norms, if not outright challenging them or disrupting them. Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's dream. Hey y'all, it's Aurelius. I'll be a host on today's podcast. Dr. Megan Sibbett is an assistant professor in the Women's and Gender Studies Department at OU. She teaches courses related to LGBTQ issues and topics like queer theory and LGBTQ movements. She grew up in Wyoming and has lived in red states her whole life. She graduated with her PhD from University of Texas at San Antonio, where she studied Chicana feminism. Prior to that, she received her master's in American studies at Utah State University, where she studied feminist activism in the U.S.-Mexico border. Dr. Sibbett is working on a book manuscript that focuses on state and institutional violence sustained through ideas of quote-unquote protection and queer resistance to mundane violence. She recently had an article published from Oxford University Press on white privilege, monstrosity, and breaking bad, which is the coolest research out and is, is so cool for future scholars who are interested in and doing work between scholarship and activism to see your work. And Dr. Sibbett is someone who I've taken multiple classes from during my time at OU and have learned so much from. So, so appreciate her uh, being willing to to come onto the podcast and have a conversation with us today. How are you doing, Dr. Sibbett? I'm doing very well, thank you. And I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And so the first question, Dr. Sibbett, that we ask all of our guests on the podcast you know, the name of the podcast is Dream Radically, Imagining the Future We Want to See. So that's the first question for you is, is, is what is your radical dream? You know, thinking a lot about this, I think that this is such a great question, but it's a challenging question. I think I would start with saying that my radical dream is that we believe in radical dreaming because that is one of our biggest challenges to actually believe in something radical happening or that it's possible. One of the ways in my mind and in my studies and in my teaching um, to help us believe in radical dreaming is to believe in the radical legacies that came before us. The organizing throughout history from communities of color, working class, poor communities, indigenous, immigrant, queer communities. And not that those are separate, distinct communities, but are often the same community. And to see the work that have come out of those communities, different organizations, helps us to believe in radical dreaming. So often in teaching, I notice that my students have this sort of linear view of the world and that they see as like, okay, in the past things were really bad, but now things are getting better. Now we're organizing, now we're doing these things. And to realize like so much radical organizing has come before and rests on the radical organizing today and that's inspiring and I think that it helps to sustain radical dreaming. Yeah and I I think so often young people but just all people think that it's unrealistic or impractical to to dream radically and that even in activist spaces right that the work is so urgent the fight that we're fighting is so urgent 
that we don't have time to to dream uh, or to imagine a better world and how like this system or these institutions literally like beat it out of us th this process of thinking that there's something better and that these realities are not set in stone but have been built and to the same extent can be dismantled and something new can be built what you'd said about you know that we have this idea of of you know not being perceived as naive or not being perceived as working hard being like a clear-minded activist that a lot of times this radical dreaming drops off right as like well that that but that's not reality that's not what's really going to happen you know we see this so much today in politics too you know you mentioned earlier some of my work that's on really seeing the violence that comes through protection right and i think that like this idea of protection diminishes radical dreaming so much because there's all of this rhetoric that says well though this is for your own good this is you you know we need the police we need prisons we need all of these things to keep you safe right but that's not what's keeping us safe and we can have different ways of organizing our communities where we don't require the protection of the state and the brutality of the state in order to be safe and healthy, that that can come from community organizing. But it's easy, and I think it's easy even to say to myself, no, oh, no, no, don't be naive, right? Don't say that out loud because people will think that you're naive. Yeah, we're taught, you know, so much that like, this is the way things are, and this is the way that things have to be because we need safety, because we need order, because we need protection you know, we have within us the imaginings of like what that better world has looked like pre-colonialism, right? Like indigenous histories and indigenous knowledge of how we existed without the prison or without like punishment apparatus, right? So often we think that like these things are just the way they are and the way that they're going to be, but these things were created. I, I think like the Abolish ICE movement has really shown us these things. ICE is a brand new institution, right? We think the way that we deport families and put people in, in detention centers and things of that nature is the way that the things have always been. But I mean, we're not even talking about the 1960s, right? We're talking about 2001, like post 9-11, that this entity was created um, in order to punish immigrants. And so like, we're literally talking about like brand new things and brand new ways that the state has created to quote unquote, keep us in order or keep the American way alive or whatever excuses they use that to harm people. Yeah. And then the organizing that we see around and against things like ICE, there we get to see a lot of radical thinking that helps us to reimagine spaces without ICE, without these sort of protective measures that are then, you know, told like this is for your own good. Right. But I like that you've brought up discipline, right, because like we're disciplined into thinking that we need this protection and, you know, discipline and punishment. Right. To use the title of one of Foucault's books, which is so central to queer theory, is a lot about like how we become regulated into naturalizing these harmful norms. Right. And a lot of those norms are about protection or this is for your own good. If you can picture like a benevolent parent, right, saying to a child, this is for your own good. And to think of how easily we, we fall in line behind those things, particularly those of us who have privileges, right, middle class privilege, white privilege, educational privilege, cisgender privilege, the benefits that we might reap from those things. Um, and so that, you know, there's even more reluctance to critique it and to see how harmful those protective states, those protective measures are. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I love that in your research areas, right? Like you research mundane violence, because I think so often we just think about violence as like a cop shooting Laquan McDonald 16 times in the back, right? Like the really obvious forms of, of state sanctioned violence. And I think about this quote that I saw from Kwame Turi, right? Where he talks about this sort of mundane violence. He says, is it not violent for a child to go to bed hungry in the richest country in the world? I think that is violent. But that type of violence is so institutionalized that it becomes a part of our way of life. Not only do we accept poverty, we even find it normal. So like thinking about the ways that like these systems and institutions institutionalize oppression and violence, just quote unquote normal violence, everyday violence in such a way that we don't even think about it as such. We don't even think about it as violence. Yeah, the person that I read first that helped me to really start to think through mundane violence was Gloria Ansaldua, you know, Chicana lesbian feminist theorist that she, there was this one line in one of her books in, in Borderlands, La Frontera, where she says, we sit daily drinking our coffee along with terror, you know, and, and to think about like, what, what is the terror that we don't recognize or that, or that we naturalize, right? And, and it's not to say, it's not to sort of catastrophize, you know, our daily lives to be like, yeah, everything is dangerous. Don't, you know, don't go outside. But to start to recognize these systems um, of violence or administrative violence that we don't easily recognize, that we naturalize. And I think that's the key to thinking about how we naturalize violence. So, you know, the point of this conversation is to sort of talk about queer theory, to talk about like theory to practice, uh, particularly with like academic scholarship, um, moving beyond the academic walls to actually implementing these things in everyday organizing and activist spaces. And so with that, I want you to just talk about like what is queer theory for, for our guests who may be familiar and may not. First of all, queer theory is an academic discipline and like all fields of study. It has its own life history. It grows, it changes and things like that. But it's also not just academic. It can be very practical and things like that. Now, I don't want to get into like all of the academic history of it and the way that it's changed and how it's related to post-structuralism. And we can get into that if you if you want. But to really just kind of be direct about um, what queer theory is, is that it is about critiquing norms, if not outright challenging them or disrupting them. Now, in the 80s, when queer theory was emerging in academics, those norms were mostly about sexuality and thinking about gay and lesbian identity politics and so on. And then in the 90s, it later became less about gay and lesbian identities and more about being, as one scholar puts it, that queer theory is a critical force to denaturalize norms. So thinking about as a critical force to denaturalize norms is a really succinct way to think about queer theory. And the norms aren't just gender and sexuality, but all, all sorts of norms. Of course, gender and sexuality are the easiest ones to really start to think through about, you know, what does this norm naturalize? What, you know, what sort of hierarchy of privilege does it create that we also normalize? And so at its heart, queer theory is really about really understanding privilege and, you know, how, are, how is privilege built into these norms that we participate in, we help to uphold a harmful hierarchy. So that, that piece on like normality and, and disrupting the naturalization of what is seen as a social norm, 
what is normal uh, and who, who gets to decide who or what or what entities are normal? We all decide. We all participate. You could think about patriarchy, right? How we participate within patriarchy. And I often ask my students, you know, if we imagined a world where tomorrow all men disappeared, would patriarchy still exist? Well, of course it would still exist, right? People of all different genders participate within patriarchy. And the same goes for other norms. So heteronormativity is one that is so pervasive. And heteronormativity is a norm. It's not the same as heterosexuality, okay? But heteronormativity structures a lot of the world around us, right? It's about a, a sense of rightness that's just embedded in things. Like, this is the way that it is. I think one of the most normalized but shocking examples of heteronormativity are, are onesies for babies, right? That they're very gendered, right? So there'll be like a, a onesie that's supposedly for boy baby that will say something like ladies man, right? So it, it <laughs> like naturalizes and normalizes not only that his gender will determine his sexuality, but also what type of even heterosexuality would be the proud one, right? It's, it's such a bizarre thing, right? Like it's such a bizarre phenomenon to have these like really gendered baby clothes when people feel so afraid of thinking about outside of heteronormative ideas when it comes to babies, right? You know, it's sort of like this taboo. Well, you can't, you know, don't, don't think about anything besides like a cisgendered baby, right? Um, so we can't even have conversations about intersex or all sorts of other ideas about little kids, right? It's so taboo, but that we're fine having kids wearing, you know, shirts that, uh, you know, have these really weird things on them. You know, and I think that that's one example, but to think about heteronormativity, it's embedded in so many things in the ways that we access medical care, the way that we can create families that get supported by the state, marriages that get supported by the state, the ways that we participate within education, the ways that we shape ourselves, right? So even thinking about the ideas of what is, you know, a respectable masculinity, a respectable Black masculinity, right? This is also about heteronormativity. Yeah. And like how fascinating it is, you know, we talk about this a lot in, in the men's accountability group that I facilitate with FLM how early on we are socialized to be like real men, to be a womanizer essentially, right? Like ladies man, right? And how literally sexualizing an infant, <laughs> you know, a, a one-year-old is okay, right? Like that's normal, that's how it should be because this young boy is going to grow up to be a man who's going to play all these women and like dominate and do what men are supposed to do. But if you try to disrupt that or interrupt that, right, you know, or intervene in that space with, well, what if that person isn't a boy, right? Or what if that person isn't attracted to women? Or what if he is attracted to women, but like isn't interested in like dominating or, or playing women, quote unquote, right? Or like, what if he's gay? Then what, right? Like, you know, you have this onesie and then it, it turns into, well, why are you trying to teach this young boy to like boys? But then it's like, why are you teaching this young boy that he, he must like women? And just how, how normal it is to just sexualize a young kid. And I think that that really helps us to expose the lie of naturalization, that heteronormativity is natural way to go about things rather than really understanding it as something that is um, disciplined, right? And it's, it doesn't mean that 
our parents disciplined us into a gender or a sexuality. This is big. This is much, much bigger than this. This is generations and generations. It's institutions, it's education, all sorts of things, right, combine to do these things. But where we can see the, the fragility of that is when we start to see challenges to it and then the sort of panic that ensues when it's challenged. It reminds me of when, oh, it was, you know, like, I think it was in 2006, there was a group in Oklahoma City that was really concerned about LGBTQ children's books in the public library. And so, you know, they, you know, organized and, you know, demanded that the library remove these books. And, you know, the library eventually came up with a compromise where they said, okay, we're going to put these books in a self-help section where kids would have to have parental consent to be able to access Heather has two mommies, right? Like a, a children's book. And, you know, the group was still panicking and said, but what if they accidentally see the spine of Heather has two mommies? You know, so then the library said, okay, well, well, we'll put them five feet off the ground, right? As if kids don't know how to use a step stool. So it's sort of like this idea of this fragility of what's, what's seen as natural, right? Or it's seen as normalized. And the thing that I want to say to the people who are panicking is just admit like, okay, we've put so much energy into disciplining our kids to believe in you know, there's only two genders. There is only one way of managing your sexuality. That we've put so much effort and work into that, that despite all of our efforts, it's still so fragile that at the moment that they see a children's book that says Heather has two mommies, it's going to shatter, right? <laughs> you know, to think like how absurd this is. It's just like an example of this, oh, but this is normal and natural. Oh, but we have to do all of this work to keep building it together and nothing better come in to disrupt it because then it will fall apart. Nations will fall apart. Communities will implode and so on. Right. The nuclear family will no longer exist as we know it. <laughs> right. Queer theory, right? The first word may be drawing for some people listening who have, you know, thought about queer as, you know, a slur. So I wonder if you could talk just a bit about sort of the reclaiming of, of that word within the queer and trans community. Mm -hmm. Queer is a complicated word and it has a long history. Taking a homophobic, hateful term and proudly using it can be very off-putting, particularly to people who have been brutalized um, through that term. But this is an activist strategy that we see from all sorts of different activist groups where you take a term that's oppressive and reclaim it. And that's happened with queer. And it's not recent. Back, you know, in the 70s and 80s, there were groups organized like Queer Nation. We see in a lot of pride parades and protests signs that say we're here, we're queer. Queer in a lot of those senses means anti-normative. It's not the same as, well, in regards to queer activism and queer theory, it's not the same as gay and lesbian, right? In fact, sometimes it's a critique of that. You know, it's, it's to work against any sort of the enforcement of the norm. Queer is both a noun and a verb, also an adjective, right? It also tries to escape any sort of definition because it is against a norm, right? So it sort of becomes a conundrum of how can we have a definition for queer when it tries to defy any sort of stabilizing structure. 
but it does help to think of it as something that is going to continue to work against norms while valuing differences, right? It's not to say, well, everybody is totally different and, and escapes any sort of definition, so let's just not even talk about it, right? It values difference. I think Audre Lorde is like one of the best queer theorists to really read in thinking about what do we do with difference and how can difference be a tool for working against destabilizing hierarchies of power that naturalize so many oppressive things. Kathy Cohen's work is an essay that I have my students read in every class that I teach. Kathy Cohen uh, is a Black lesbian activist, scholar, educator, and one of her main ideas is about the radical potential of queer politics. And one of the things that she does is she says we need to move away from thinking about queer as exclusively about sexuality or even gender. That queer means whatever is against the norm. So if you want to think about all of the benefits afforded to couples, right, and that we think, okay, well, all straight couples get these benefits. And Cohen says, well, no, because we see how Black single mothers are disciplined over their dating and romantic practices, right? That they might be denied welfare by the state if they're seen as being, you know, quote unquote, promiscuous. And Cohen says, what we need to do is to really recognize that the radical potential of queer politics is helpful for everybody because everybody gets disciplined by the state for ways that they fail to uphold a norm, right? A sort of like uh, morality of being and a way for the state and institutions, right? We could say corporations as well, deny the same levels of access to other people. So Cohen's work is so important because she helps to take the conversation outside of this is just about sexuality or that, you know, queer thinking and queer politics is just for LGBTQ communities. It's not. It's for all communities. Yeah. And, you know, that work was so, so instrumental for me because as a sister and the heterosexual man, right, coming into these spaces, learning about these things, it was very much so from a place of trying to be an accomplice, right, to people who uh, diverge from the norm of heterosexuality and cisgender gender performance, right? And to think about like queer theory, the radical potential of it as anything that resists and not necessarily like as an, as an active form of resisting, right? But just by way of, of being, um, of existing in a certain body that differs from like what Audre Lorde calls as the mythical norm is an act of resistance, right? And how all of that is a part of a, a larger queer intervention. And right, and, and that's what I really want people to focus on in this episode is that like queer theory isn't simply just lesbian and gay identity. So that's a piece of it, right? Or isn't just there are more than two genders, which it is a, a piece of it. And we should think about those things, right? But that queer theory um, and queering or queer interventions is a part of destabilizing um, what, the world and what societal structures have created as normal in this world and that so for black people in this world are inherently queer right and and i think that is so far removed from where black liberatory movements have been because so often you know and audra lord again talks about this all day this isn't just we're going to name this podcast audra lord right <laughs> um but she talks about the ways that like, you know, in black movements, anytime, right? If you're trying to talk about women or you're trying to talk about queer and trans people, LGBTQ people, I should say, 
that you're not really talking about Black things, right? Which, of course, completely erases the fact that there are Black LGBTQIA plus people, for one. Mm -hmm. Um, And two, to think about in a really radical way that just by way of being Black is like a queer intervention to the white supremacist social structure. And to also do that in a way, and this is what I tried to do in my papers in your class, to do it in a way that acknowledged that and didn't erase the realities that people at the intersections of racism, sexism, misogynoir, transphobia faced in this country. And you did it really well in your papers. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of my favorite lines from that article from Cohen is that she writes, at the intersection of oppression and resistance lies the radical potential of queerness to challenge and bring together all those deemed marginal. Right? And this speaks to exactly what you're saying, right? Like we have like this potential of queerness and, and Audre Lorde's work is in conversation with what Cohen is arguing, right? Because Audre Lorde is pointing out that we destroy difference. And when we destroy difference, we lose this radical potential to create change, right? She says that we're programmed to do three things with difference. First, we copy it if it's admirable. If it's not, we ignore it. And if we can't ignore it, we destroy it. And to think about how then, you know, what she says is that we lose so much because it's through our differences. We shouldn't ignore our differences. It's through our differences that we can truly create caring, supportive, radical communities of care. And her work, and same with the the Combahee River Collective, I think is a good example that she was a part of, you know, did a lot of that work and put, you know, queer theory ideas on the ground in thinking about, you know, how to create daycare and welfare reforms for uh, working class Black women to manage picket lines and all sorts of things, right, that wasn't ignoring difference, but is, is utilizing it. So, you know, you've, you've mentioned a few queer theorists. You've mentioned Kathy Cohen, Audre Lorde, Gloria Anzadua. Um, who are some other queer theorists and what do they take as, as central to their work? E. Patrick Johnson is, I think, a foundational person to study. He uh, writes a lot about uh, Black queer studies with Meiji Henderson. And he, you know, he brings the idea of queer uh, studies, which is, you know, like this, he has this idea of like the way his grandmother would pronounce the word queer and, you know, to not shun this sort of cultural experience that communities can bring to queer thinking, which aligns a lot with what we've been talking about Cohen. Queer theory isn't just an academic thing where you have to learn the ins and outs of this discipline, um, but it's also about these sort of like imaginative, playful things that we can bring from our own experiences and culture um, in order to disrupt norms. Uh, Another person would be Sarah Ahmed. Uh, She's one of my favorite people to read. You know that. I think so clearly she helps us to think through some of the things that become so normalized. Like one of the things that she writes about is happiness and how happiness becomes the sort of thing that we have to invest in. You know, we, we, we follow this path. We're told if you do this, this, and this, and this, then you're going to be happy, right? This sort of like happily ever after that these things lead to happiness and to be able to critique happiness, comfort, and other things as those things that are situated in order to compel us towards certain norms. 
Eve Sedgwick is another great person to look into. Sedgwick is one of the early academics of queer theory. She was an AIDS activist. Um, so she's, you know, teaching queer theory for the first time in uh, universities while she's also watching so many of her friends die from AIDS. She's teaching and going home and her, her house is like an organizing space for, you know, all of these people trying to get the government to recognize that there is a serious problem and that people are dying. She takes things that seem so natural and simple and shows how complicated they can be. She can be frustrating to read, and I think that queer theory has a reputation, rightfully, that sometimes it's so dense and incomprehensive, which is disappointing, right, because it needs to be accessible in order for it to be liberatory. If we can't all access it and understand it, it's going to have a hard time of reaching the radical potential, I think, that Cohen is hoping for. So those are some of the people that I, I really admire as yeah. far as queer theory goes. Yeah. And, you know, I think what, what you were going to in that last piece is like this theory to practice, right? Like, what does that look like? And there are obvious critiques of academia as being inaccessible to the masses, um, and particularly for disciplines who take central this sort of radical potential and liberatory mission or vision, how that can stand up front to those very same ideas, right? Because if it can't be accessed by the people who are dying as a result of this AIDS epidemic and the failure of these institutions to address it, so what does queer theory look like in practice and how can those things, particularly for scholars like you who are writing about real life things, right? Things that actually are affecting, you know, marginalized people day to day. What does that look like in practice and, and how are those lines? How are they? How have they been? And how can they continue to be blurred between like theory and practice, academia and the real world, I guess? Mm -hmm. I think that like queer theory and activism they mesh really well together and that they enhance one another. I think that queer theory that remains sort of in the realm of academics, it gets sort of shortened in the way that it can be reach a radical potential because it doesn't have the sort of application or it's not understood how it applies. And I think some academics are, you know, saying, well, my, my responsibility isn't to engage in activism, it's to think about stuff, right? So I think that even theorists that are there to do the thinking, right, it's helpful. But some of the things that I would say of what queer theory looks like is that it helps us to critique things that happen around us and why they're happening. So, you know, one of the things that I work on and I use queer theory to critique is failure to protect laws. Um, which incarcerate a lot of Black mothers. You know, this idea of you are the protector and you failed to do that, so therefore you must be criminalized and incarcerated longer than the person who did the abusing. And, you know, queer theory can help us look at, like, what are the norms that are used to justify the incarceration of these mothers? Why is it Black mothers that are being criminalized for this disproportionately? And, you know, and this isn't to say that we need to criminalize the abusers or that, you know, more men need to be punished under the failure to protect laws, right? But it helps us to critique the law itself. I think there's other really great projects that use activists that use uh, queer theory. The Audre Lorde project is one of them, the Sylvia Rivera project. We mentioned earlier the Combahee River Collective shows what queer theory looks like on the ground and so on. Absolutely. There's a great reading list coming from this podcast, so it's, it's beautiful. Last question for you, Dr. Sibit, and it's not a small question. How has whiteness permeated LGBTQ plus movements and what does queer theory have to say about it? 
queer theory has a lot to say about that, but at the same time, whiteness has permeated queer theory as well. You know, I, one of the things that I don't want to do is to portray, you know, queer theorists and queer theory as this sort of like happy, radical family that, you know, like any family, every family, it has its dysfunctions and those dysfunctions are really insightful. Both LGBTQ organizing and queer theory, even as it critiqued the norms, it normalized a white middle class gay and lesbian identity. It prioritized those things. A lot of times we see in mainstream LGBTQ organizing the prioritizing of white middle class gay and lesbian interests and queer theory can do this as well. It has done this as well, um, thinking about who was getting published and who wasn't getting published. Today, queer theory is one of the most diverse areas of study. You know, people will say sometimes like, oh, well, there's queer theory and then there's queer of color theory. And to me, that's queer theory. I think in most universities where you're taking courses on queer theory, those are the theorists that you're reading. Um, so it has changed, but it's still burdened with white privilege and prioritizing white middle-class ideas. So, And, you know, I think one of the biggest lessons that I, I gleaned from your instruction, Dr. Sibbett, was how a lot of pushes within the, the mainstream LGBTQ movement has essentially looked at acceptance, like looking for acceptance, um, and how queer theory is averse to sort of that acceptance, right? Accept us, like unity, kumbaya type of thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and moving away from it. And I think it's best exemplified with like the push for marriage equality um, and looking at like the institution of marriage as a heteronormative institution, right? Um, and how now trying to say that love is love and that now it's not just men and women, but now it can be men and men and women and women and, and, and we're good and, and that's freedom and how that isn't necessarily addressing the material conditions that the most marginalized people within the queer and trans community um, are actually in need of. Yeah, and we see that even with the campaigning for marriage equality and that sort of love is love campaigning, that this, you know, placating this idea of don't worry, we're not going to disrupt marriage, we're just like you, we just happen to be two women, um, in order to then reap the benefits of marriage through the state, you know, going back to the idea of queer, and the ways that queer was and is being used is to set apart difference, right? And to say, no, we don't want to say that we are exactly the same, don't worry. But to say, no, we are different. We're radically different. And um, we have radically different experiences and ideas. And remember, this isn't just talking about LGBTQ people, right? And to say that, like, we need to value this rather than shun this or to consolidate it into heteronormativity. Because if we think like love is love, like what does that really mean, right? It means that, okay, well, there's a recognized way of loving and that that's the acceptable loving. And if you can conform to this particular way of loving, then you get to have the benefits of it. If you conform to this way of being in a family structure, then you get to have the benefits. And it's not just state benefits, but other benefits as well, you know, like being not ridiculed by your peers in school, being able to have employment and housing, being protected in those things, or it's spread through so much. Well, Dr. Simmons, I definitely want to continue this conversation. You know, thanks so much for sharing your insights and for bringing it in a, in a really accessible way. I think that's what you do better than any professor I've ever had, because these are big topics and things that are quite literally uh, reimagining 
um, everything we've ever deemed as, as normal in this society. So I thank you for your work and for sharing it on this episode and, and hope to continue the conversation. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it so much. It's been a blast to talk with you. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.